God is more like uh, Dostoevsky than Tolstoy. And he says, hey, in, in a Tolstoyan novel, you kind of know that Tolstoy is trying to teach you a lesson. He's kind of right there behind the face of his characters. We're in Dostoevsky, you're like, mm, is that his view? Is, is that his view? I think he's probably trying to say this, but his characters have like this pop to them. They have their own kind of substance. Hey everyone, I got a brand new guest. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with him. He's actually, I would say, one of my one of my favorite go-to listens in the world of podcasts. It's Parker Setacase, and uh, maybe some of you also listen to Parker's podcast, Parker's Pensies. Again, it's one of my favorite. Um, you know, Parker, I love this this line that you have, like as you encourage people to to support. Um, people that are making podcasts and it's really helpful. It's like, I think you, you tell people pick your top five. If I'm in your top five listens, would you consider supporting me? And that was like, Oh yeah, I think Parker is in the top five listens for me. So I should support him. That's the only way this thing works. So mm. uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, Parker. Maybe, um, maybe we could start off by doing a little bit of a background introduction into just, just start off by telling, you know, my regular listeners who might not be familiar with you, uh, a little bit about your podcast and then like just share with us you know it's guys like you are a pretty rare breed that that come from this the christian tradition but are deeply conversant with academic philosophy and uh, i'm just really interested how you got into that world so tell us a little bit about the podcast tell us about your upbringing your journey into this world of you know, kind of being a mediating bridge between the academy and and lay people when it comes to the world of philosophy, dude. Paul, you gotta thanks thanks for having me on. First of all, uh, and you have a, a way with words. I, I can tell that you've been studying some uh, theology. The philosophers usually don't have as good a way of uh, with words, unless you're in the continental world, and then no one can understand your words, anyways. <laughs> but uh, so I appreciate that. I, I do want to give. Uh, a shout out to you, to your own audience. I know that you're looking for, I think, 200 patrons this year. Is that right? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So, folks, if if, if Paul's in your top five, go support him right now. Thanks, um, everything helps. And, like, I love what this guy's doing. He's doing something very similar to what I'm doing. And if you guys lament the state of our culture or the state of the conversation even going on in the culture, then you, you got to support people like us. So well, let me uh, fire back on that because I, I feel the same way, Parker, and maybe we can just hang on that for a moment, not mm. to just like get people to write us a check. Cause it's really, yeah, right. it's really not about that. I was even just going through your YouTube video, uh, your YouTube list of videos. And I listen primarily on podcast. I don't mm. know. I'm, I don't know what the percentages are of people that do the, the watch the videos, but I'm seeing some of these, like you've got some heavy hitters in the world of philosophy that come onto your podcast. And to me, it's almost like mind boggling that some of these videos don't have like a hundred thousand views. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't make yeah. any sense to me. It's gotta be an algorithm thing because the conversations are so rich. And, you know, I, I just want to encourage all of you. I'm, I'm going to piggyback on this. This isn't even about me or Parker, but uh, if you want this kind of stuff, I mean, I look at what you do, Parker, as, I'm like back in the classroom again, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. except I'm not paying for tuition. Yeah. And that's the whole way I've even looked at my project was, well, I could go and adjunct, you know, or I could like try to remove some of the barriers that keep people like so many people. It just doesn't make practical sense for people to go 
realistically go into debt, tens of thousands of dollars to get a degree in philosophy or theology. But these are the essential questions of life. And I feel like you're doing such a service to people that I, again, I want to encourage you. Thanks for encouraging my listeners. But if it's Parker or somewhere else that you guys listen to, um, if you want it to keep happening, um, please consider supporting. Yeah, totally. We, I mean, we don't want to have to sell athletic greens. I will, but, uh, I'm not, (laughs) that tastes disgusting. (laughs) That's great. Um, well, okay. So, so my podcast, um, has to do with what we were just talking about. So I, I married a a beautiful woman who worked at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Actually, she worked in the undergrad Trinity International University. And I found out a month before, our wedding that, uh, because she'd worked there for three or four years at that point, her, her spouse or future spouse would be able to get free tuition there. Oh, and what a deal. I, dude, it was great. So I, uh, I always prided, I proud, prided myself. I was, I was arrogant and proud, but I thought I want to be really smart. I want to know theology, philosophy, apologetics, and never go to seminary. I want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. And people kept saying, Hey, you should go to seminary. And I was like, no, you're just saying that because then you have an excuse for not being uh, educated, you know, but, but I'm your, I, I take away your excuse. I didn't go to seminary and I know this stuff. So people kept telling me and, uh, I said, look, if God wants to pay for it, I'll go, but I'm not taking debt for this. And then I found out God's going to pay for it. So I, that's awesome. Yeah. So it was nice because it was actually humbling too, because now people are like, Oh, if you know stuff, you should know stuff. I'm like, Dang, I should know stuff. Yeah. I should know more. Um, so it was a big switch from like, Oh, you know, a lot for not being educated to like, Hey, you should know everything. Cause you're educated. So yeah, please that, tell was, us everything about philosophy right. ever. Parker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that was actually really good for my soul, uh, and my intellectual, uh, trajectory. But so, so I ended up getting two free degrees and uh, people are like, you should get an MDiv. I'm like, I don't want an MDiv. I want, uh, I have, I have eight semesters free. And so I took a systematic theology degree and a theological studies degree, but I also took Hebrew and Greek. And so I got all the goods from the MDiv with two degrees. And I took like 94 credits from undergrad all the way up to, to PhD level. So it was amazing. Some, some semesters were 19 credit hours, but I'm like, this is free. I, I'm going to take as much as I can. And I ended up working uh, with Kevin Van Hooser on my master's thesis. And actually, I'm, I'm sure you probably know this, but people are are not doing master's theses as much anymore. Mm-hmm. They're doing smaller papers that maybe you can get published or something. And I was like, look, I don't know if I'm going to come back here for a PhD. I want to get everything I can out of Van Hoos. So I'm going to write you a, a thesis. And he's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I'm sure. You're, you're going to be my, my guy. And then I, I roped John Feinberg into it as well. And if you, if anyone's familiar or not with John Feinberg, he wrote his his PhD in philosophy dissertation on the problem of evil at University of Chicago. So he's kind of a big deal too. Yeah. So yeah, my thesis was defending Van Hooser's model of God from the problem of evil, and I had two giants on my on my board. Oh man. Oh man. Okay. So I want to talk about that in a moment, but I also want to ask you a question as someone that spent a lot of I don't know how old you are, Parker, but you know, someone. I spent much of my 20s, I was already teaching. I just had an undergrad and I had a school of hard knocks for ministry, (laughs) you know? So I was teaching in Christian high schools, teaching theology, biblical studies. And I, like you, I just, I got to this point and it was probably after years of being in charismatic circles. Mm. And I was like, uh, I mean, people would have said in those circles, like a prophetic worship leader, which meant we just spend two hours, like it's like jazz meets mm. 
psychedelic music meets all of this stuff. So that's the best description I can give to people that don't that don't have any experience in that culture. And the thing I came out of that was this like vociferous appetite to know God in all available channels. So mm. I felt pretty content going, I don't need to go back to school. I can, I'm self-taught. I love to read. I'm doing this stuff anyways. But I wonder if this was your experience. I found when I finally realized, well, part of it was just a, I was bumping up against my career ceiling, you mm. know, where I was going, all right, unless I advance my degree uh, this, you know, I'm going to be bumping up against, uh, you know, a, a ceiling here of what I can, what I can do. And people look at my education and under, you know, my, you get only got an undergrad and we're like, well, you can only teach this much. Right. You know, so I went back primarily for that still with a tinge of arrogance, like you're saying, yeah. like I, I will read all of this stuff anyways, and I will write about it anyways. I don't know if this was your experience, but I found it so incredibly helpful to actually have someone on two levels. One, people that would vet me mm -hmm. and people that would actually expose me to things that I would never read, watch, or listen to as an autodidact. Right? And, and so I actually look back on that and go, there was a degree of arrogance that I had, but it, was, it wasn't smug. It was it was just more uh, maybe a blind spot realizing you can't just allow the algorithm like the YouTube algorithm or your next Kindle recommendation yeah. to give you what you should continue to have. You actually need to have people expose you to things that you would never like I would never have read Latin American liberation theology just on my own. I had no interest in it. Yeah. whatsoever. And thankfully, I got exposed to it. So did you have a similar experience at TED's? Yeah. So I, I call it um, holes in my education. I didn't want to have any holes in my education. Because like you said, when you're, when you're self-taught, you're guided by your own desires. And that's a good thing. But if you don't have anyone saying, you will read this book or you're not going to pass. Exactly. It's like, well, well, why would I want to read this book? I have so many other good books. And so I was really um, stuck in like the Reformed theology circles. And the online Reformed theology circles is like anyone even other reform folks who don't agree wholeheartedly on this point, they're just like destroying the faith. So I was in that, but I, I started going in deeper because I, I just got so sick of pastors. Uh, I went to school with pastors uh, at Ted's. So I get to talk smack on them. There's some of them, some of them are my very good friends, but uh, I was, I was just so sick of like these trite answers that were like, well, R.C. Sproul said this. I'm like, dude, I don't care, man. I, I like yeah. Sproul. Cool. But I want to read who Sproul's reading. You know, I want to read who these guys are reading and then go back and back and back. And I just hated having any holes in my, in my uh, education, partially because I also work as a campus uh, minister with Athletes in Action. Mm. And I hate, so I have some phrases that I use, holes in my education, and I don't like getting out over my skis on stuff. I, I don't want to talk about something that I have no idea about uh, and act like I do. You know, because you get blasted and it's just the worst. So yes, I had that, that, uh, same experience and I was really glad to be forced to read stuff. Um, because I know me and partially I want to be exposed to new stuff, but the other part of me is like, I only have so much time. And if someone's not assigning it, it's kind of hard to read stuff that I like vehemently disagree with. Um, so yeah, it was great. It, it expanded my, my perspective, but even more than that, having at Ted's it's a uh, evangelical free seminary it's like our seminary for evangelical free people 
and even EV free folks are pretty chill about who they let in. Uh, like EV- I'm in an EV free church. I'm on staff. Oh, awesome. Right All right, man. So you get it. Yeah. Um, so I don't think, I, I think I may have had one professor who was even in the free church. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was great having like a Lutheran professor and then people talk smack on Lutherans and I'm like, dude, no, I know Dr. Louis would eat your lunch on scripture. Bro. <laughs> like you, you have no idea what you're talking about. So I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't just talk, you know, I couldn't talk wildly about different denominations when I have these professors who, who love the Lord and who yeah. know the Bible a, a billion times better than me, you know? Exactly. You know, that was, I, I get a lot and you do this, you do such a good job of this too, Parker. I, I, I get a lot of people, someone DM me the other day about, you know, did you take a lot of flack for something that you said in your podcast recently? I'm like, no, you know, generally my list, I don't attract these listeners that are really tribalistic. I, I imagine that you don't with listeners or viewers either. And it's, it's interesting. Like, I, th- I think that's one of the benefits and of being in a, going through a legitimate academic institution like Ted's. I, I went to Bethel Seminary. Yeah. They're both evangelical. And I guess I went in a little bit concerned that it was going to be nothing but, you know, conservative. I mean, theologically, not politically conservative, yeah. evangelical positions. And I kind of wanted to be exposed to some things that challenged me. And I did. And then yeah. I started to realize I got evangelical professors that 10 years ago, I would have accused of being like liberals, you know, I'm like, no, and now they're tracing it back to like this church father. And I was like, this, this was the eye opening thing too, as well was I didn't think of myself as tribalistic. Yeah. I didn't think of myself. I really didn't. But then I look back and I was like, you know, you might've been, you know, the angry Calvinist guy. Yeah. I was going in the, the angry open theist guy, you know, okay. so I came from the other side of the spectrum. It was That's like, awesome. I had a, I had a colleague shout out to uh, Dustin Thompson over at, at Southwest Christian. And, uh, he was, he was the, you know, the, the angry Calvinist. And I was responding to that <laughs> dialectic with my, uh, my Greg Boyd books and, nice. you know, a- and then I came out of that experience, similar to what you're saying, having professors that were like, oh yeah, this guy comes from the Baptist tradition. And I always just, you know, as a charismatic Baptist were like, Dude, just go either all the way, either be, either right. be reformed, <laughs> right. charismatic. What are you, you know? And um, I, that's where I got exposed to Van Hooser too. Mm. I'd never read or even heard of Kevin Van Hooser. And one of my biggest takeaways from my education experience was how, how does this guy get, how can we get this guy out and more exposure to the huh. rest of, of the world? Because um, I still look at him as I think he's one of the best living theologians today. So what was it like studying with Kevin Van Hooser? Maybe first, like I've mentioned him before, especially when I get into, you know, the, um, theology of culture. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that was my biggest takeaway yeah. from Van Hooser's work was his work, like everyday theology, everyday yep. theology, um, re, re myth, re mythola. Remythologizing, remythologizing. It took you. me a while to learn that one, so I'm glad to say it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of Van Hooser's work on theology and culture was for me the most impactful. So, can you talk a little bit about like who is Kevin Van Hooser? Yeah. What did you learn from him? And let's talk a little bit about that process and 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 doing your your thesis with him. 
Yeah, dude. So I started this podcast because of Kevin Van Hooser. I I had all this time with him, and I signed up for a bunch of his office hours and just bugged the crap out of him all the time. Uh, and I didn't. I actually didn't know that he could see how many times I signed up for office hours. So like, I I had him. You know, he's my he was super my first reader for my master's thesis, and I was like, yeah, you know, just so you know, I signed up for a couple of your office hours. And he's like, no, you signed up for 11. <laughs> and I was like, bro, I had got no a restraining idea. order. Yeah, I had no idea you could see that. But uh, he he is very busy because he's got like 14 uh, PhD students at a time. And he he is too generous with his time. If he's listening to this, like he he knows that, but he needs to back it down. I think he's he's like the he's the preeminent uh, systematic theologian, living systematic theologian. Lots of people think that. I think that. But um, the fact that you and I have to explain this to people is kind of sad to me, right? Because because people don't know that. And his work's kind of tough. Um, he he's really influenced by continental philosophy. So you so you know Paul Ricoeur. If he's not mentioning Paul Ricoeur, then he's not living. But he also goes in to Donald Davidson and analytic philosophers as well. What's he, the difference between two? Can you give a, a brief? Yeah. You know, again, like I was telling you, Parker, I, I look back and I go, I actually haven't had a lot of philosophers, sure, like true, not true philosophers, but academic philosophers working the academy on, on the yeah. podcast uh, is there a quick and easy way that you can give a, a you know layman's distinction between analytic and continental yeah. philosophy yeah yeah sure so I, i'll say that i'm a, a young millennial i'm 31 so that means that i um I, I like absurdism that's just who i am if you're an older if you're an older millennial you're from like the oregon trail generation you're a little bit that's more me. like a boomer yeah, a little bit more like professional and and like let's just and I'm more like off the cuff. Let's say like a lot. Let's let's be silly. So I, let me give the young millennial de definition, and Perfect. then I'll give a more uh, serious one. But analytics are super boring, and they talk about uh, stuff that doesn't matter. But they'll go in <laughs> on 17 different propositions on it, and so it'll be like, um, what does is mean in this sentence? You know, and they'll they'll say like, here's 17 different ways that you can talk about is in this sentence. And it's like, great, but what did we accomplish? And then there's the, the continentals who are like, let's talk about being and, and geist and soul in the world. And then they'll say like, Hey, uh, even things thing. And you're like, what, what are you talking? What's happening? So the, the like caricature version is that continentals talk about really big, important questions in ways that are incomprehensible and analytics talk about things that don't really matter in excruciating detail and so that's There's some examples kind of, of each yeah so um slavoj zizek is a is like the most popular uh continental thinker right now and he talks a lot about marxism and he talks like this and yeah and he's always touching his face always yeah and yeah. it's like I, I think there's i don't follow his stuff a lot but i think there's there's some pretty funny things memes about him and stuff um he would be continental um you know jordan peterson is kind of a continental philosopher which is funny you know he the the people he pulls from are all continentals um who would be so famous analytics is kind of funny because there's not any famous analytics like the people that i think are super famous no one has ever heard of but timothy williamson is like one of the greatest living analytic philosophers right now because of his broad scope he talks about every every different subfield he's an expert in uh michael humor is another one and it's like man no one's gonna know who these people are um uh, Roger Scruton was, uh, maybe some people will know him. He kind of, he kind of stepped on both, which is really yeah. nice that he's like an ideal philosopher in that sense. Cause he could talk about everything, 
but then you know a lot of people called him racist and stuff too and then that kind of messed with him so um let me give a little bit more of a serious one they're called continentals because they're from the european continent and they started with uh started with like consciousness and husserl and then they kind of took a weird turn into existentialism and um it, it just got broad from there so even like feminist philosophy a lot of that's going to be continental philosophy mm-hmm. um and the analytic tradition has to do more with like britain and uh north america uh particularly the united states and they came out of the logical positivists and so these people were like hey look if it, if uh if you can't satisfy this criteria for meaning then uh it doesn't have any meaning and so these people re- were really attacking theology and metaphysics and then uh they really emphasized logic and rigor and the two fields are the philosophy kind of split in 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 half and there was the analytics and the continentals and it, as you focus in more detail at particular philosophers it's kind of hard to be like are you analytic or are you continental yeah. so then it, it kind of has to do with method do you do you try to state your case in an argument in a really clear form yeah everyone's going to call you analytic or do you use rich flowery metaphors well then you're going to be a continental and I like to joke and tease, and I like to be on the inside of of jokes about both. But you know, I, I do want unity. I want people to still write in in good ways and use metaphor. But I also want to know what you're saying, and I want to be able to find your argument so that I can argue against mm-hmm. it or affirm it. You know, mm-hmm. that's helpful. Yeah. That's a great breakdown. So we're 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 getting so we we're coming out of talking about Van Hooser into that. Yeah. Where, where does where does Van Hooser fit on that? that spectrum and let's talk a little bit more about his work and your yeah. your connection to him yeah yeah so van hooser is definitely more continental and that that has to do be, um with his use of metaphors flowery language flowery language um and his just his writing style so he i learned how to write under him uh in academic settings and it was really hard for me to transfer over into philosophy after that but he will cite sources to make his point so he'll use one block quote another block quote another block quote and it's hard to say like what is where's van hooser in this in this line of thought because there's a bunch of quotes but he's stringing them all together and it's like dang i was just exposed to 25 different sources in one paragraph that's crazy um but then again like i said he will use analytic uh philosophers he used to be kind of critical of analytic theology but he's come around since then and and uses them as well so i just i love this guy he's kind of he may be a little tricky to read, but when you do, uh, and you, when you comprehend what he's saying, like it's really rich. He's got amazing ideas. One of the big frustrations that I have with him is that he will drop an idea on the world and then kind of just bail on it. So he'll write a book about something and then it's on to the next book. And it's like, well, but you, what you said there, I want to talk about. And he's like, oh, that was like 10 years ago. I'm like, Van Hoos, no, that was. So I decided to take a year and a half and just work on one thing from one of his books, the authorial analogy for the God All right, world. Let's talk about that because that, yeah, anytime that comes up with any guests that you have, I'm just like, that's that that lights me up so yeah. talk about that that thesis talk about that work you were doing with van hooser on this and maybe even you know we can get to some of the guests that you've had on that have either helped you think more deeply about that or challenged your thesis yeah yeah so i i've been thinking about this for a while because i found it all over the place in in theology the idea is is roughly this that god is the author of reality. God interacts with the world 
in an analogous way uh, that an author interacts with their story. And so I, th I thought, yeah, this can help us with free will. This can help us with God and time. This can help us, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote an article, The Seeing Eye, when the Russians went into space and they're like, hey, I see no God up here. And Lewis wrote this article in response saying, like, yeah, because God's not that kind of thing. If you did find God up there, well, I'd be really upset because he's yeah. not this local being. He's more like an author in that he's on every page of the story. But if he didn't write himself into the story, then he's not, you're not going to see his name. So you're not going to see, you know, Shakespeare's name in the, in the, uh, in the story. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that idea. And I started talking to Van Hooser about it and I was like, yeah, I want to write my thesis on God and time. So God is maybe outside of our time, but a lot of people have a hard time understanding, like, how could God be outside of time at all? When would he create? And I thought, well, this is nice. C.S. Lewis wrote himself into the great divorce as a character in the story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he was halfway through, let's say he stopped writing and he went out for a coffee. And it wasn't like the people on the inside of The Great Divorce were like, oh, where's the author? You know, time's frozen. There's two different levels of reality going on. Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, we could, we could make sense of God having intra-Trinitarian time. So God the Father can speak to the Son, who can speak to the Spirit, who can all glorify each other, add mm -hmm. intro within the, mm -hmm. the Godhead. And then he can create created time in, in the world. And Van Hooser is just like, yeah, that sounds cool, but they're gonna, everyone's gonna hit you with the problem of evil. You know, <laughs> if if God authored the story, like, why did he write so much evil? And how, how come he didn't write a better story? So then I was like, dang it, okay, fine. So he wouldn't let me do anything but the problem of evil. And I found out later, partially, that's because some of his friends were hitting him on the problem of evil for his authorial analogy. So uh, the analogy is awesome. I find it all over the place. Um, Catholics use it. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is a, is a Catholic. She, she wrote a whole book, The Mind of the Maker, and she uses the authorial analogy. Uh, Protestants use it. You know, Anglicans use it. It's all over the place. But um, a lot of people will use it in a limited scope. They'll say, hey, this can help us for this, for God in time, or for God's uh, you know, not showing up in the world, but still being present and active in it, C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis. And I thought, man, I just think it's a stronger analogy than that. So I had to look up what analogies are, uh, the difference between analogy and a metaphor. Real quick, it's easy. Metaphors are liter literally false. So if I'm like, Paul, man, you're, you're a handsome guy. You're a fox. Well, you're not literally a fox. It's a metaphor. And there's some metaphorical truth there, but it's literally false. Mm -hmm. Whereas an analogy, uh, they are literally true, even though they're not univocally true. Um, so that's what I want to say God is. God is literally an author, but he's not univocally an author he's not penning the world with yes, yeah. uh, pen and paper mm -hmm. but authors are actually like a derivative form of god the author god created this world by his word he spoke it into mm -hmm. being he breathed out the stars uh and then you know we see in john one the author enters into the story the word became flesh and like in a similar way that c.s lewis wrote himself into the great divorce and so then we get the incarnation that's kind of cool um, God's the main, main character of the story. You and I have subplots going on, all this cool stuff. But then why is there evil in the world? And so that was really my main focus. And it depends on the type of authorship on display. So Van Hooser says, God is more like uh, Dostoevsky than Tolstoy. And he says, hey, in, in a Tolstoyan novel, you kind of know that Tolstoy is trying to teach you a lesson. He's kind of right there behind the face of his characters. We're in Dostoevsky, you're like, mm, is that his view? Is is that his view? I think he's probably trying to say this, but his characters have like this pop to them. They have their own kind of substance. And a lot of that is 
is probably because he's pulling that from the public sphere. He's probably mm-hmm. talking with people who are atheists and non-atheists and all these different views and bringing their ideas. Their, he calls them voice ideas because that's continental. And you're like, voice idea? Yeah, sure. I know what that means. You're like, no, no one defines it. But he brings them into the story and they have more... Um, it's like they're a real character. And so Van Hooser's like, hey, if God is like a, a Dostoevskian author, mm-hmm. then we can still have free will. We can still have our own ideas and stuff like that. And so I I did some hard work in trying to flesh out how we could have free will and yet God could be sovereign over the story. And and he's not morally culpable for the evil acts that I do, just like uh, Tolkien isn't morally culpable for the evil things that Smeagol did in becoming Gollum. You're like, no, you don't go and arrest Tolkien in this reality for what his character did in that reality because it, for a lot of different reasons, right? But partially because Smeagol had his own reasons for doing that. Tolkien, if Tolkien's a good author, then he's going to give Smeagol his reasons for doing what he wants to do. Otherwise, he's a bad author. We call that deus ex machina, where you, the author just drops in something and it's like, that was a terrible story. You, you ruined yeah. it. Yeah. And now you're getting at the question. All right. So to me, I, when I hear you talk about this, because this this resonates with me because it, it gets at deep problems, questions I've had. I mean, like I wrote a book last year that was um, on the problem of evil. You know, this yeah. has been the thing. And people ask me, well, how long did it take you to write? And I say my entire life, mm-hmm. even though it took me, you know, I wrote it over the course of a year or so. Because to me, the question that you're getting at here is dealing with like two two conundrums that are perennial for theologians and philosophers, and especially in our secular age, is we're dealing with uh, how do uh, how do we think about God being transcendent and imminent? Yes, right. So how do we have and the the we have like those the two poles, right? We have the the pole of like deism on one regard, which is like in some sense pure transcendence with no imminent living God. So the God of the biblical narrative is actually participating in the story mm-hmm. somehow you know you like in some sense deism is you take some of the logical some would argue some of the logical consequences of classical theism right and you go if we pull that to its extreme what we have is again you've got the prime mover who is perfectly intelligent perfectly omniscient right so all he needs to do is to author the story or you know i often compare it to setting up a row of dominoes extensive plane of dominoes and God acts as the prime mover, just pressing that first domino down. And then we have sequence domino, domino, domino falling. And then we lose things like free will, right? Mm -hmm. We lose things like, well, all I'm doing is I am responding. I am in effect to a previous cause. Yeah. So there's a problem there with evil free will, like totally like just eradicates the biblical narrative, which to me holds these two, Two things we have to come out of the biblical narrative with is human moral responsibility yeah. for sin and for sin and evil, and and we have to hold on to some sense of the sovereignty of God. And by that, I mean not necessarily that we have to agree on like blueprint models of God's sovereignty, right? Right, like um, like an R.C. Sproul that you know R.C. Sproul I think once said that if there's a single maverick universe or maverick molecule in the entire universe, then God is not God. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, all right, now again, of course, you get back to the problem of evil. If God is authoring the Holocaust, he's actually right. authoring, you know, the, the, the Smeagol's, each mm-hmm. individual Smeagol in the world. That's, yeah, right. that's a problem. But then there's also the other problem of like, all right, well, 
in what way does a God who's beyond being, who's not just a thing in an arena of other things, he's not a super thing, right? Yeah. So like, you know, the Russians go up into space. We don't see God. C.S. Lewis is like, yeah, that just because you're totally misunderstanding what God is. Right. But the problem on that side is you get such a, and this is maybe some of the critique, like a guy like Bill Craig, William Lane Craig has had of a David Bentley Hart. You know, David Bentley Hart is like you're you're teaching um the theistic personalism, William Lane Craig. And William Lane Craig is like, well, I'm trying to to tell a story that doesn't make God a purely um deistic, right. transcendent prime mover. So how is God in the story? And I do think some by analogy, the the idea of God being like a Dostoevsky, or I was thinking about in one of your interviews, and maybe even came up. You have like in let, let's let's take a, a Marvel comic book, right? Yeah. The Marvel universe, you have this like hierarchy of beings, mm -hmm. and then you have these godlike beings, but then you also have, and I think it's in Marvel, or I can't remember if it's Marvel or DC, where the god is the one above all the one above all that's DC. whoa wait actually i thought that was dc oh man it might Someone be marvel in the comment section help us out here it's funny because it's it's like the same person it's in the both. same it's the same it's, concept it's jack kirby in both universes actually well and that's up for debate right is like yeah, yeah, is it yeah, jack yeah, kirby yeah, yeah. that's right you know and yeah. can jack kirby or stan lee who are authoring the story also step into the story yeah the one above all is marvel i'm pretty sure i'm gonna say that that's my final answer yeah, <laughs> yeah. someone, it. someone, someone, remind us the, the the correct answer in the comics. But they both have the equivalent. I forget if they call it something different in one or the other. But there's the same equivalent, is that you actually have something that transcends all you know, way beyond the Eternals, way beyond Thanos. Yeah. You have the very ground of the entire story, mm -hmm. but that also the one above all. Sometimes you have these like theophanies if you will. Yeah. yeah. In in the stories, which to me is fascinating. And is that, that sounds similar to what you're saying, right? That there's a yeah. way in which God is transcendent, like mm -hmm. he's the one above all. And then there's God as Stan Lee in the yeah. story. Yeah. Is that a, is that a fair it, comparison? It, it is. And I, and I, I like that a lot. So, um, man, there's so much good stuff here. So you talked about the, the transcendence imminence, uh, uh, distinction and that that does come from continental philosophy so the continentals you, you guys win on that one that's great um it's it's really really helpful to think through but there's also uh so in more reform circles they're going to talk about the creator creature distinction yep you got to hammer that all the time van Hooser taught me hey don't hammer that so much that you don't have a creator creature relation as well and that's what you're talking about with with deism Yes. You know, we don't want to have this distinction so much that we can't make sense of the biblical account where God is also related to us. We're his image bearers, right? So I think the authorial analogy really, really helps with the creator-creature distinction and relation um, and the transcendence and imminence. God is everywhere present, just like the author is everywhere present, even more present than his characters are in some sense. And yet you don't find him on the pages unless he wrote himself in. The theophanies are awesome because... Uh, in, in the Marvel universe, they're they're helpful. Still a little bit hard to understand because it's still an analogy or metaphor or it's some kind of you know cognitive tool. Because yeah, trying to grasp like God's being, like the 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 Marvel creators, 
they didn't create anything ex nihilo or into nothing, right? right? They they had right. to pull from everything. So it's like, what does that even look like for God to do that? But yes, uh, I would say, yeah, in, in Jesus Christ, we find the ultimate like theophany um, that he he came in the flesh and he limited himself. And this can help us make sense of why did how come Christ didn't know the the day or time when he's going to come back? Well, he did according to his divine nature, the extra Calvinisticum uh, the, for the theology nerds. Um, his his divine nature, he still had it, unless you're like super hardcore theosis. But the um, C.S. Lewis still knew what time it was in England while he's writing the story, even though maybe his character inside the story did not know what time it was in England. See, that's where that's really helpful to me. Yeah, it's a wonderful yeah. analogy. I love it. So it does a lot of work, but if it does, if it does too much work and makes God the author of evil in in like a morally culpable sense, then we got to drop it. You know, then then you shouldn't use this. And so that that was my whole goal of saying, you you already kind of broached this. There's two levels of causation. So God is not the domino knocker over, but the, uh, he he. There's James Anderson, one of my favorite philosophers, theologians. He made this distinction in a paper between alpha and beta causation. God exercises alpha causation over the story mm -hmm. but not beta causation uh intranarratival causation or not always sometimes he does and he writes on the wall uh or he you know opens up the ground and swallows people up Some, sometimes he does that or he enters in through christ but even when he's entering in through christ it looks like he's doing more beta causation right some of my listeners might know it a read or the readers of the book would know it as primary and secondary causation yeah too, right? yeah, yeah primary totally. as in the ground of all things sustaining all things holding all things together right now by yeah. him, through him, for him, in Christ, everything's being held together, being willed mm. at this very moment. But that doesn't mean that all of the agents in the arena are being um, acted upon by God to behave and uh, act in particular ways. Right. Totally. And I got to grab that book, man. I was listening to uh, one of your episodes earlier uh, with the Africa. Cree, yeah, that one of the one of the Gen oh, Z yeah, yeah, yeah. dudes. Yeah. I love that guy. I, I, I never, never like, I never can say his his YouTube uh, Hunter. This is yeah. I never say it out loud. Name. I always see it on yeah. Instagram. I like that guy. Um, so that was that was cool. I got to grab that book. But yes, you're right about the different types of causation. Um, I think that this an authorial analogy, uh, can be used by like uh, a Molinist. I think it can be used by a different. So maybe it's like a choose your own adventure book instead of like it's all totally mapped out that might be molinism i think that if you're open theist you could probably use this as well like there's different ways to use it and i know that because i know different authors have used it in different ways mm -hmm. but I, I am a calvinist and and i wanted to find a way i think a lot of calvinists go in for like a tolstoyan view where you're like no god caused it to happen you're like well, be careful man because even the westminster defines didn't want to say god's the author of evil and you're supposed to be this big westminster guy you know come on read your own stuff so we need a way to say God is still sovereign over, I think he can be sovereign over every molecule while you can still have free will. And so it depends on what you mean by free will. If you think it's libertarian free will, you might have to adjust this a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you think that you can still be free uh, because you're a compatibilist of some stripe, then here's here's a way that you can do it. And I go in for a particular type of ca uh, compatibilism because I was really concerned about Pharaoh. My dad read me the story of Pharaoh when I was five years old and I, I sat in my closet and I, I, I cried a little bit because I was so scared that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What if he does that to me? My dad, I love my dad. He's great, but he didn't have a super great answer for me. He's like, oh, Pharaoh already wanted that. And I was like, well, no, it, he said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Van Hooser helped me with that. And, and uh, in the book, Remythologizing Theology, he, he goes in, um, he says, how does God 
how does God uh, divinely uh, convince people? How does he divinely determine them? Well, oftentimes he lets them to their own devices. And uh, when he calls someone to himself, he uses persuasion and illumination. So the Holy Spirit illumines us and opens us up to things that we didn't see before. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times he uses other people to persuade us of things because God knows what it would take in order for us to believe in him. And so you still have divine election. Why doesn't he do that with everyone? Well, because he's telling a particular story and I don't know the full story. I'm not outside of the text. I can't see everything that's going on. He can, I can't. So you get to use some skeptical theism type stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, if you're, if you're of a different theological persuasion, you can tool it to a different view. I think as long as you can make sense of it with scripture, because that's my authority, you know? So right. I think that everyone has to find it there, but. Right. Yeah. And that would be the, that'd be the thing we share in. And that's, that's, that's kind of a, a shared evangelical. Totally. Thrust is that, you know, it is in some sense, like I'm, I'm looking for harmony. And ultimately all truth is God's truth. So I'm looking for yeah. harmony between general revelation and special revelation but and i think this is bart's point and i think bart's point sometimes is misunderstood i'm not a bartian but sure. you know bart starts with the revelation of christ and my reading of bart is that bart is making the case we cannot interpret so we can't we can't do natural theology perfectly and get mm. to christ you know, we can't do general revelation perfectly and get to Christ and someone get like, what are you talking about? And I hear Bart's point to me, this is Bart's point is that like, you have to have a hermeneutic lens by which you would even interpret the events of the world as being good or evil. Mm. Right. And without the lens of Christ to interpret the world, you're already starting from some other interpretive lens. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and to me, that's like, that that that's the point where I do think like part of our evangelical tradition is still affirming that it's like to me it's affirming that none of us are coming from some blank slate neutral yeah. perspective. So the by by which the way we read the world, like I'm just confessing, um, it's a confession of faith that I I recognize I am coming from this lens and this viewpoint already by which I'm going and interpreting what's good and evil, right and wrong. It's not from some neutral blank slate. Yeah. So, so um, I used, I would have, old me would have got so triggered that you brought up Bart, but then I would have been excited that you didn't say Barth because I had guys in the (laughs) seminary that said Barth. But um, so I came to the same, the same viewpoint through Van Til and for the Van Tilians, they're like, no, Van Til wrote a whole book against Bart. There's no, there's no comparison here. And, and that's one thing that Van Hooser gets hit for all the time is that he, he sees them both really closely connected. Totally. And so everyone just is like, you're stupid. And just goes in and attacks him. But yeah, it's the same thing there. You know, um, you, you have an interpretive framework. Some, some of the other folks like the phenomenologists will say, well, then you can't really know reality. If you're just looking through rose colored glasses, jumping from one to the other. Um, but I think uh, the Christian would say, Hey, we, we are seeing reality as it, as it truly is. And we're, we're trying to live along the grain of reality. That's a good theological phrase. There's a grain to reality. And when you look through the interpretive lens of Christ and scripture and the Christian worldview, you see it for, for what it truly is. And you start living that way and you see that it matches up with reality. Mm. And so it's not just this postmodern view that we're all, everyone's stuck in their own interpretive framework. It's like, well, no, one of them is the objective framework. So, so come check it out and see if it is or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no one's like this, this blank slate that has no 
intellectual biases or anything like that. No, we're all situated in, in different places in the world, in different stories. And I think there is one objective story that, that does press in on us. Is it this one? Come check it out, man. Come on over. That's why, you know, we're evangelicals in that way. Another fascinating thing about your thesis to me, um, Parker, is that to me, it leads to, um, tell me if you disagree with this. Mm. To me, one implication from it is that one of God's ultimate objectives, and I don't think this is one that we get very well in our culture, which tends to, um, we are so shaped by greed and greed mm. uses beauty as a means to an end, as yeah. a way of of grasping at um, getting something from somebody else. I just don't think we understand beauty that well. To me, one of the strengths of your thesis and from others that would agree with this, maybe uh, I was looking at was Brian, was it Brian Ballard, Dr. Brian Ballard? Yeah, yeah, he's the man, dude. Nar narrative realism. To me, it points to God's intentions being a very overlooked intention is, is God as creator, creator of beauty, and that maybe he's authoring a story that the supreme value might be the, to author the most beautiful story yeah. of all, yeah. to author the most beautiful, to create the most beautiful song of all. And spoiler alert for those, you know, it's been out for a year, but I, you know, my the focus of my book was on primarily giving people for the first, I don't know, 17 chapters, just a, an overarching history of past positions Christians have had on the problem of evil and suffering. And then I throw in my two cents at the end to try to do some sort of synthesis. But I, I conclude with the, the sort of creation narrative mm. from, um, from the Silmarillion. And to me, I find that such a fascinating theodicy yeah. It is to me a theodicy from Tolkien that what you might have going on here is that that God is trying to write, not trying to write, God is creating the most beautiful song. And just like what you might have in classical music or complex jazz music, where you might have notes that feel a little bit like they're outside of the key, yeah. you know, that you have dissonant notes and dissonant chords, that he is such a masterful composer that he's going to weave those back in, in such a way that mm. in the end, the sum total of the, the piece of music will be the thing that we would say, this is the most beautiful it could have possibly been. Now there's plenty of valid critiques against that perspective. I don't want to say that some individual person's horrific suffering is is just simply well you know you're you're part of you're part of something beautiful i i don't think that provides a lot of immediate consolation yeah um, to people so i would never use that in necessarily in an individual case but on the macro sense to me i think that helps make sense of why does god create of nothing anyways mm. why bring this to be why this particular world among all the possible worlds and i do think the molinists are right in some sense and that mm. um and that this is the best of all possible worlds. Like mm. this has to be to me logically, you know, otherwise you're getting at some other thing that might be related to process theism where there could be some 
force acting upon God to create things a particular way. But then when you have that, you're like, no, the thing that's acting upon God is God. Then we're just, yeah, right. I mean, like, you worship that thing. Yeah. Yeah. That is the thing that is, um, that is necessary. And then you have what you were calling God contingent. And to me, God by definition is that which is necessary. Hmm. So if that's the case, I think we have to have the most beautiful, the, 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 the best possible story, the best possible piece of music. Do you see it? that way too do you see that as being one of the the implications of this sort of like narrative uh authorial approach yeah so i think that um i think i want to be careful because i am a philosopher right so best possible um a, a lot of philosophers think there is uh no best possible world that the the concept itself is uh is not well formed or it's in, uh, you know in inconsistent because you could always imagine Alvin Plantinga says, uh, you could always imagine one more hula girl, one more dancing hula girl, one more palm tree. He's such a, like a wholesome man. I, I don't know why he picked that one. Because if you just say that's all you know about Alvin Plantinga, you're like, okay, that guy's kind of weird. Yeah, right. But uh, he's just making a joke. Um, you can always imagine one more or, you know. Um, so so I, I step off of the best possible just a little bit. And I say this is a, a better world than the rest, a better story than the rest of the stories. Mm -hmm. Um I do kind of, you know, if you pressed me, I'd be like, yeah, I think this might be the best possible because I, but I, there's some, there's some hard things that come with that. Cause then it seems like maybe God is forced to create the best possible. And you go, well, now if he's going to create, then he would have to create the best possible. And it's like, mm -hmm. is he still free to choose then? Could, you know, what if he wanted to name me Steve instead? Could he have done that? Well, no, it's really, you know, the best possible story was where Parker is named Parker. And so, um, just for the sake of like defending it against philosophers, I always step back from the best possible. And I say, this is a better story than one where there is no evil. Why? Because of character development. And actually, dude, we're so similar. Like I, I'm trying to synthesize all the, the theodicies or defenses. I know some people say theodicies are inappropriate because you're trying to justify God to man. Yeah. So a defense is better, but then they end up doing a theodicy. You're just using it as a categorical Yeah, term. right, right, right. Yeah. Totally, totally. So I'm with you on that. But um I, I want to do a catch-all as well. Why, why is there evil in the world? Um, well, ultimately, a bunch of reasons. There's character development. If we think of the world as a as a as a story, mm -hmm. then uh, the the soul building defense comes right yes. in, man. Like you, I wouldn't be me without the stuff that I had to go through, and you mm -hmm. wouldn't be either. And people know this. If you listen to Joe Rogan, in, in one hand, he's saying like there can't be a god because there's evil in the world. And the other hand, he's like, I have to strive every day to be who I am, and I love it. I love pushing myself through. Even the bad stuff made me who I am. Like, wait, that's a theodicy. Though. You just did, totally. you know, that, those yeah. go together. So you get that. Um, the uh, the greater good defense. God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing the evil that He allows. Um, how, why do I think that? Well, because He He did it on the cross. You know, he, he, if he could take the worst possible evil, the son of God being crucified wrongly, and he could bring about the greatest good from that salvation for anyone who trusts in him, then he could do that with a lesser evil, like the evil I experience. Mm -hmm. So maybe I've gone through some really evil stuff, or maybe the listener has gone through some really wicked, horrible stuff, but it's not the worst possible thing. And so if God did it with the worst possible to bring about a greater good, then he can do that with you as well. Okay, well then tell me, what's God doing? Well, now I can go in for skeptical theism. I'm not sure, man. I'm narratively situated. And it might be yes. really inappropriate for me to say, God allow you to be abused for this reason. No, I don't know. I don't know the ripple effects. There's, there's probably a billion reasons. And when we, like you're saying with the music, the discordant uh, notes, when you hear it all in context, you go, wow, that's beautiful. I always go with like uh, a tapestry. 
if you're looking on the backside and you're work, looking at one square inch, it's all it's all weaved together, all weird. You can't you can't tell what's going on. But you zoom back out, you start to see a pattern, and then you flip it around, and you see this beautiful work of art. And you're like, oh, okay, yes. And so, in in that view, I want to make the claim that all of the evil that you've experienced or that you've even perpetrated, some of us have been very wicked. We would see that and say, like, I see how God used this. And I'm not glad that I did it or it was done to me, but I'm glad that God used it. You know, I'm glad that it, I see what God's done. And uh, Tolkien, I'm sure you know, like he says, uh, there's coming a time when all all evil things or bad things are going to come untrue, something like that, come undone. Um, yeah, when you see it in light of the of the story, you go, man, like, that was amazing. The Lord of the Rings wouldn't have been the Lord, the Lord of the Rings without... The finger getting bit off without you know going the, this long trudge all the way to mordor like beautiful amazing story character development greater good defense um so so i like to roll them all into into this authorial analogy uh planning as oh felix culpa uh, oh happy fault you know what why is there sin and evil in the world because we get to have incarnation and redemption because we get to see christ for who he is we I, we wouldn't know god as redeemer as long sufferer, as someone who loves his enemies, if there were no enemies, mm -hmm. right? And so, I I don't want to be. I know you talked about this um, in recent and in, in past episodes. I don't want to be like trite about this. And and yeah. if someone's struggling with the existential or emotional problem of evil, I don't want to blast you with this right now. Well, technically, you can't prove. That's not the time to do that. But if we're having a, a philosophical conversation about it, for sure, of course, I want to do this. And I. I don't want to press that distinction too hard either, because I think the philosophical, theological um, propositions can help you when you're struggling emotionally. Um, and I know that for for certain, because that happens to me all the time. Yeah, I'm very much attracted to the, the one facet of the argument for for character development in this mm -hmm. age, and I I am attracted to a side of origins argument on this. Not that this is, you know, or, origin was working within his platonic to arguably like neoplatonic, like there are legends, right. Of, uh, origin having the same, same teacher as Plotinus. I don't know if we actually know that definitively mm. or not, but origin is working within that platonic late platonic to neoplatonic framework. And so he's trying to make sense of, you know, the preexistent souls and people get hung up on that. But I, I do think Origen's argument that this particular age is like a hospital for the soul, mm -hmm. right? So how do we how do we start? You know, why uh, this comes up? You know, maybe as a kid, one of the questions I had was like, "All right, well, if we were made for heaven, why didn't God just make us in heaven?" Yeah, which is like, well, that's a great <laughs> that's a great question. And I think if we take seriously that God made a world where there's always going to be creature creator distinction. He's making a world where he desires, um, he desires to be desired mm -hmm. as we all do in love that I think there's something to this age being a necessary part of God's total story to bring us to an age to come where we would get to the point where our character and nature would be so transformed. And I am, I'm not like Jungian in this sense. I do think there is evolutionarily collective unconscious, whatever you want to call it. We learn from previous generations, not mm -hmm. just through our institutions of received wisdom, but actually through um, 
uh, what's what would be the word I'm looking for through instinct. Mm-hmm. Like we have genetic changes that change our instincts over time. So I am, if you get, uh, you know, there's a great book out there, um, survival of the friendliest. Huh. Okay. Survival, okay. Of the friendly, friendly, survival of the friendliest. It's written. I'm, I can't remember the author's name, a, um, biologist or, um, geneticist. I can't remember. Tells the story of, uh, Russian geneticists who were doing experiments on friendly foxes, creating friendly foxes. Huh. And they continually breeded the foxes that showed from an early age, less aggression and what they actually found after time, after several generations, just everyone's gonna have to pick up the book because my details might not be spot on here. But after I can't remember how many generations, you started to see physical feature changes. So less, um, less sharp teeth, uh, fluffier, uh, mm. fluffier ears, shorter tails. They were less aggressive over time. And so, what actually was happening through the process of continual successive generations of these foxes continuing to breed was it, it's actually changing their nature yeah and i i think god is doing something similar to humanity where the the, the second adam is christ the entelos is christ and when we will get to the age to come human nature will be so transformed we will be one with christ this to me is theosis too on a, on a, on a collective sense we will be one with christ so much so that I think we can still retain our freedom of will, but our will will only be oriented towards the good. So it would be like we go to a buffet and what we're choosing is, do I want to have cookies or ice cream for dessert? I still retain my will, but I'm only willing the good. Yeah. And to me, what we experienced, like sin is to go to the buffet and not be like, oh, are ice cream bad or is ice cream bad or a cookies bad, but to go to the buffet and to dump all the food out on the floor. That was actually a perversion of the good. It actually yeah. isn't in keeping with the telos. And I think I'm really attracted to this idea from origin that this age is about, he wouldn't say character development, but I'll say it like that, like yeah. the way you're wording it. Character development so that in the age to come, in the new Jerusalem, that we will still retain our will, but we will have nothing left in us that desires the good. Like Parker, I have never once been tempted to punch a baby in the face. <laughs> That's good, man. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you have, this is a, it's okay. Safe place to confess. Yeah, it, but thanks, man. You know, it's it's not in you to do so. Yeah. While there's a degree of things that I do still feel in my will that yeah. are not oriented towards towards the good. Now, if I lived in ancient Sparta, you know, I might be tempted still to throw a baby, a deformed baby off of a cliff. Right. I don't have that in me now. I think God is doing something in the story with humanity where the end goal is Christ so that in that age to come, like and in that age to come, we will have these transformed characters and yeah. we can look back and the story will be beautiful. We'll understand why it went through that process. That's That might be where I'm at. What do you think well, about any of that? So I like that. Um, I, I wonder, so with the animals thing, uh, I'm looking at my dog over here, Theophilus. He's awesome. But he's got these really long ears. Yeah. And and some people say like that, that happened as a genetic trait uh, to signify that like, when when the dog's ears go down, it's showing submission, and so he's just built. Yeah. yeah, and so he's just built in. Like, dude, I look how submissive I am. My ears are all the way down, 
and and sometimes you'll see like a baby uh, a dog sniffing a baby and he's really gentle with them mm-hmm. and people say well that's because all the ones that weren't gentle with them we killed them because if you touch my baby you're out and so cer- certain things like that but in that sense like my i like my dog more than i like like uh, his ancestors way down the line and and i don't think god's like that i don't think you're saying that but i'm i'm no. thinking of the listener who's saying like oh if we're um, if God's genetically changing us, uh, then like you and I will be worth more than like our our ancestors. And even if a million years, if God, if Christ tarries for a million years down the road, you know those people will be even better because they'll be like naturally more inclined uh, to be better people. And I, I don't think you're necessarily saying that. I just want to like address that and be like, hey, I don't, th- I don't think that's what well, we're I saying. I got to think we're about that. Even, like, I might be saying that though. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, well, like I well there's some like eugenics kind of stuff there it's kind of scary man where you're like I don't know dude no but I'm saying like I think God is authoring it and when we do it yeah. in a way like eugenics is because we don't have the perspective or right? or because we're putting ourselves in the place of God yeah right exactly. we don't we're not outside the story and we're, we're self authoring hey, we, we can do that. this yeah that's yeah instead instead of following like I I believe like if we continually follow Christ and we raise our children. I mean, I, I feel like I am the inheritor of my my parents came to follow Jesus in their 20s. And now as people yeah. do that over successive generations, I think what you have, like ideally is you've got people like my grandfather, my grandfather's dad was a raging alcoholic who my great grandmother had to kick out of the family. Yeah. And he was raised in abject poverty. Um and I'm thankful for what my grandfather went through to to establish a new heritage. Yeah. But he wasn't as kind as my father. Yeah. And my father was still probably working things through there. And I'm working through things. And ideally, like, this isn't about, like, eugenics and self-authoring. To me, yeah. I see it as, like, if we actually respond to the spirit properly, if we, yeah. if we don't resist the spirit, that might be the better way of putting it. Mm. We don't resist the spirit that he is leading us towards that, that telos, right? Which is, which is Christ. And I, I, I do see, I'm not making like a transhumanist argument either. Okay. So yeah. that, that would be important to, to note. I'm not saying like, this is, this is the way, um, you know, the, the age to come is manifested that it's just, you know, it's just going to be purely evolutionary processes. Yeah. What I'm saying is I do think there's something about this character development um, facet of the narrative that yeah. the the age that we're living in has to be this kind of particular age for God to bring us to the age to come. Otherwise, why not just start in the age to come? Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does. So, so Give me I your pushback this... too, because I see yeah. the wheel spinning and it's good. <laughs> it's good. That's no, how, well, we, how we grow. So, so I'm I'm more uh, C.S. Lewisian uh, because I'm a philosopher. I have to specify which Lewis I'm talking about because there's C.I. Lewis and there's David Lewis and there's C.S. Yeah. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis says um, something to the effect of like good is getting better and evil is getting eviler. And I'm that kind of uh, depending on how I woke up. I'm either a pessimistic amillennialist or an optimistic amillennialist. But I, I think that um, as a Christian, I have to agree with what you're saying because if the whole world continued uh if the whole world followed the dictates of christ followed the bible i'd have to say that the world would be better i have to think that um parents would care more about their kids health mm-hmm. and so i think like genetically the health would increase i think people's education would increase because 
teachers would go out of their way to reach the least of these. Um, uh, they'd have more support from the parents. They'd have more support from the administration. Everything would have this upward spiral. If I was a post-millennialist, I, I might think that, yeah, in a million years, that's actually what's going to happen. And then Christ will come back when all of his enemies are under his footstool. And that means yeah. like them actually becoming Christianized and becoming Christians. But I'm a, I'm a, you know, mostly pessimistic. I'm a millennialist where I'm like, there's going to be pockets that are just mm -hmm. going up and up and up. And there's going to be other pockets where it's just evil. And sometimes you get, you get a black sheep in the family who's just a psycho. And you're like, bro, where did you come from? Like totally. what happened? Um, so I'm with you on that, but I, I focus more on the individual where I'm like, you, why didn't God just create me in the new heavens and the new earth? And it's like, cause I wouldn't know the despair that I experienced as a teenager who's just like, God, like I want to die. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what it's like to worship my girlfriend and make her my God and have her just crush me. I wouldn't know what it's like to be a, the per perpetrator on the other end That's right. and just be a complete scumbag and then see that God loves me. And he was, no, no, you shouldn't love me, man. Like it's enough that you don't send me to hell. Like just annihilate me. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, I'm going to choose to love you. I'm going to make you into my soldier. You're an en enemy on the en enemy lines. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to make mm -hmm. you into a, and your battle now is going to be with love. And it's like, what? So I just, I just would not have that if I didn't go through this this time period. And so I, I do that with the, with the individual level. But I think if you're saying like, yeah, dude, if everyone followed Christian standards or everyone was a Christian, the world would be better. You have to say that, right? If you're a Christian, you have to. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I'm not making a case for like theocracy. For sure. Yeah. You know, yeah Christian nationalism. I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying, I'm yeah. not saying a power over if all we we're able to do was to get everybody to believe the things we believe the world would be a better place. What I'm yeah. saying is I can't help but see Christ working in the story mm -hmm. to bring it to its desired end. I have to believe that I have to, I have to hold to the, we're heading towards new Jerusalem. Now I'm not saying it's going like this, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, I think I can't make sense of the, the cosmic scale of, of history i can't make yeah. sense of the six cataclysmic events mm. i believe it's six that, that that preceded us you know but before mm. there was a, ever even a, a homo sapien yeah you know I, I think it's not as simple i'm not saying i'm not Do you saying think it could be going like this though like i mean there's a battle well, i think it in but i think it could right? be i think it's more likely like this the ebbs and okay. flows and it might be not to get hegelian but, but tre trending up though yeah i think it's okay. trending up and i think again not it's weird because I don't really I find myself frequently bringing up Hegel and, and confessing <laughs> that I don't like him at the same yeah. time, which might mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but what might be happening is again, like we might have these pockets of thesis bumping into antithesis into new thesis, mm. you know, and the seasons of going through the antithesis, right? So if you're living through world war two and yeah. you're, that's the antithesis, mm. right? Coming out of it though, it would have been hard to pick. And to me, like the golden age of America, well, for some, I have, you know, not obviously not for everybody. For sure. Um, but for many, they might look back and go, hey, 1950s, post-war mm -hmm. America, would you rather live there or rather live here? I go, huh, I might rather live there. You know, I don't know. Not everybody would say yeah. that. But yeah. I'm saying like you come out of these pockets and I do think like the trajectory is heading ultimately 
towards New Jerusalem. Mm. Not and um if not, like how, how what's then I get back to like, well, what's the purpose of this story? Yeah. Or maybe, I mean, I guess there's some that might say, hey, like it's going to get progressively worse. Like the dis my dispensationalist friends will go, we're getting progressively worse. Until, Any day now. Uh, Any day now. Know, and popping up out of here. Yeah. Right. Until yeah. Kirk Cameron saves us from the Antichrist. <laughs> That's right, man. You know, I, I love him. If you guys are listening, I love you guys. Uh, my Most of my family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but so I, Hmm. I don't want to, uh, so C.S. Lewis, dude, I'm sorry to keep bringing him up, but I think it's safe to hear. He, okay. he was like a man out of time because he read so much from the past. And this yeah. dude was not fooled by the uh, modern, any kind of modern, well, he, I'm sure he was some, but he was, he wasn't fooled by as many, uh, of the modern tropes and stuff. I'm trying to be like that where I'm like, man, if I put myself in like 1000 AD, uh, I would probably be like, dude, Christ is coming back any time now. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, there we, there we go. I thought you were frozen there. But, it did okay. freeze for a moment. 1000 uh, AD. If you're yeah, living if in 1000 AD. If I'm living in 1000 AD, I'm like, uh, mount up for the Crusades because yeah. I'm not going to let this nation, I'm not going to let Christ come back and find, uh, you know, Christians being slaughtered in Jerusalem, or whatever you say, what you will about the crusades and the interpretation yeah. of them. But I might be, I might do that because I'm thinking it's been a thousand years. And then after that, you know, 1200, you're like, dude, Christ didn't come back in a thousand. Like, I don't even know if I believe this anymore. And no one would say that back then. Cause they, they didn't have these concepts. But so if, if I'm like, dude, it's gotta be trending up. And I, I start thinking of myself as the author. I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm saying for yeah. me, the reason I'm always hesitant because I'm like, I don't want to get fooled, man. And whatever, who oh, cares I if I you. am? Who cares if I am? Because then like, what's the best, what's the worst case scenario? I was fooled into being like uh, a more optimistic person and being like more. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I get existentialist about right. this. Right. Which is right, like, right. <laughs> yeah. not to be Sisyphus, but what story would I rather believe if I got to yeah. push this rock up the hill? Yeah, totally. And, and, and whatever the case, so if you are fooled and, or if you are wrong about trending up, um, the tapestry is still going to be beautiful and more uh, beautiful in, in a way that's unimaginable to you. So, so then you'll just maybe be a little bit more surprised. Holy mm -hmm. cow, man. I thought it was going to be trending up because that would have to be the good story. You had it trend down for a long time. And then, wow, look what you did at the end. Okay, I see it. You know, I see it. Mm -hmm. And so I think all of us are in that position because we're situated in this narrative. So would, you know, do you feel more comfortable? Because you mentioned you think you might see the story heading in a direction where the light gets lighter. Yeah. Dark gets darker. I can, yeah. I can totally get on board with that too. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that, um, you know, to me, it's not a matter. I'm going like this, like using up analogy. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe it's more appropriate to say, um, is, can we not expect, so I'm basing this more on the biblical narrative and affirmations of God's character and nature that for God's story to be good, is he, is he not orienting it towards himself, right? So we have the, we have the, the fall phase, which is the movement away from the good, mm -hmm. right? And so again, this is like platonic language, 
but you can see this in Athanasius, like Athanasius on the incarnation. Well, why did Christ come? Is because creation was headed on this trajectory towards non-existence, non-being. You move away from being, you're heading towards non-being, non-existence. Yeah. God enters in Christ into the story to rescue humanity away from its trajectory into non-being and non-existence to return it. And again, people can be like, hey, you're just, you're just saying Plato words now. <laughs> but I think Plato was onto something. I actually think many of the early church fathers saw many much of what Plato was saying in Timaeus as almost like, um, I mean, this was Justin Martyr's thought, was like God was doing something in Plato akin to what he might have been doing in the Hebrew people. Yeah, Genesis you know? for the pagans, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and there's a really, really fascinating paper out there, and I, I, I'm so bad at remembering authors' names. Mm. I'm not a name person. Great paper on Paul on Mars Hill, and that um, I will try when I post this to to link it, uh, put the link in the description to that paper. But the author and New, New Testament scholar uh, builds a pretty convincing case that when Paul was on Mars Hill, like he is making really, really direct engagements with Plato's Timaeus mm. as he's engaging with the scholars of Athens and actually is having a bit of a rebuttal against the Stoics. Awesome. And um, yeah. it's interesting. So anyways, to bring that back into the conversation, I see this as like, isn't the goodness of God drawing all things, all things into himself? And I'm not a universalist, so I'm yeah. not saying that. Um I wouldn't be upset if that ends up being the case either. But instead sure. of saying up, maybe I'm saying drawing to the good. Yeah, Isn't that how the story ends? And uh, if it doesn't end with, um, you like, gosh, um, John Stott. I believe John Stott said this. You know, um, I can't imagine, I'm paraphrasing slightly, I can't imagine the scenario that some zealous missionaries believe where the vast majority of the human race is damned mm. like I, I i don't see that in between that and how god goes about doing it is is a mystery uh to me but doesn't the story have to end or the song have to end in the taking that those discordant melodies taking those those smeagol stories and doesn't yeah. it have to end in the good shouldn't we expect the trajectory of the story to be yeah. headed towards the good well, so so think about even the the uh, climax of uh, of Tolkien of the Lord of the Rings, where it's like it looks like this is not trending up. It looks uh, like point. right, and it's yep, the surprise. This is a surprise ending. That's like, oh, dude, I see it all, and they're all in one spot. Like this is the movie version, right? They're all in one spot to fall into the crevasse. Like, dude, no way. Like, at, okay, I see it. That's amazing. And yeah. so, you know, trending up according to who? Like, according to us in intranarratively? Maybe not. But mm. yes, according to the author, who maybe he's going in for surprise. Because I, I think we do live in a divine comedy and not a divine tragedy, right? And uh, and I I mean, the old sense of comedy and maybe the new sense, because I am a young millennial and I take everything as a joke because that's how I cope with the world. Yeah. But uh, um. Yeah, that's so, a good distinction, though. I'm glad you bring those two terms up because the, yeah. I would agree. Like, I think that's the thing you have to agree on that is that the story isn't a tragedy, but it is divine comedy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, I'm very much open to what you're saying, and that's I think that's a great point. Not all stories, not all comedies, in the classic sense of that term. I'm not talking about, yeah, you know, Ferris uh -huh. Bueller's Day Off, right, right, which 
that might be divine comedy too which um, i i hate because i'm a young millennial right and you probably <laughs> love that one so uh, my, my yeah, older I, brother I, and me beef on this kind of stuff you know we're yeah, both millennials but no my 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 ideal movie is back to the future i think that oh, movie it's a great movie yeah, yeah i think the movie's movie. flawless okay. um we can both agree there that. you go but yeah. divine comedy in the sense that the, the story ends not in in tragedy but i i think you make a good point that there can be beautiful stories that up into that that the penultimate moment it looks like darkness is winning so i maybe i do need to take that and so, so i actually i actually think that every good like the best stories do that and they do it in a way that's not ex machina where it's like oh i couldn't have guessed this they do it in a way yeah. where you could have guessed it if you were paying attention enough but but no one would have in that situation but once you see it you watch it back again and you're like yep there it is there it is there it is there it is um the big lebowski you know i'm not telling people to go watch that but th they do this with like He's got this bad acid trip and he's being chased by guys in red suits with scissors. And if you watch the movie again, earlier in the movie, there's this there's this painting of uh, scissors with a red background. And you see that that got into his, uncon his unconscious mm -hmm. and he had that in a bad trip later. Those kind of things where you're like, that's so clever. You had all this foresight to put in all these things everywhere. So that I, I see why I see the connections, but I couldn't have seen it until that aha moment. So... um. Mm. I don't know. People in North Africa, when that was super Christian, when Augustine lived there, might have been like, dude, this is not trending up because now it's all Muslims now, you know? And they're like, what the heck? You know, and, and I'm not saying bad or good or whatever. I'm saying like, they probably were like, yeah, dude, like there's a big failure here. God, God lost some ground. But I think he's going to lose a lot of ground in order to have that snap moment. But, but maybe not. I know my post millennialist friends are like, no, no way. Dude. No, no chance. And, I'm super happy to be to be wrong, you know. Like, I think all of us are going to be surprised no matter what, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be like sick, dude. I can't wait for it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but but I all this has to do with the authorial analogy, and I think it's so helpful to think like, um, I don't know, physics studies like the the furniture of the world. It studies like the props, you know. But all the sciences they miss out on the the most important aspect of reality, which is the its narratival structure. That we are going somewhere that all this stuff matters because of the plot you know and yeah and, and like or at yeah. least that's how we perceive it right there's something about us that perceives it that way which is interesting to me like yeah i don't i don't know if there's another species that's a narrative based species you know i think you're right man and and i think i, I used to think that like time binding that like planning for the future and stuff that that may be like something we need to incorporate into our, our study of the Imago Dei, like no other animal can time bind and be outside of time in that they can plan. And so then I had some philosophers tell me like, no, Corvettes do this and, and stuff like that. They don't do it to our extent, but yeah, no one, no one else tells stories like us and stories really matter. And um, that's why TikTok works because people on TikTok who get the most play, they tell a story. Hey, so I was with my boyfriend and this was going on. And you're like, dude, what did I just watch? Holy crap. You, you sucked me in with the story because we're narratival beings and we live in a great story and we mimic God in creating stories. Tolkien spoke and it was, you know, he didn't create ex nihilo or into, into nothing. But in that sense, like he is imaging his creator, God, who spoke the whole show into into being through his word yeah I'm, I'm tracking with you sometimes i wonder 
you know, this, this gets into like maybe some, my existentialist influences, mm. right. Is like, or maybe thinking about Kant or others is like interpretation of story mm. too, you know, like, yes, yes. is there, is there a story that we are actually perceiving or are we taking, you know, some might say we were just taking bits of data. It's random. It's chaotic. Mm. And we are shaping it into a story that makes sense. Now, I think that's probably more of the, the naturalist perspective, right? Yeah. Is that we just have random data and we're forming it into stories. And that probably has some evolutionary purpose in, you know, avoiding things that might uh, end our lives, yeah. helping us stay alive. We can tell these stories. We can make predictions about the future. We have to be able to do this at a high level. Prefrontal cortex does this better than any other animal. Animals do some level of like future predicting, right? Where they know, oh, I see a snake in the grass. If it bites me, I'm going to die. I'm going to do avoidance. Right. You know? So maybe maybe that's all that it is, but I think it's interesting to me that I think there might be something to that Imago Day, yeah, and like gosh, my all the true Hebrew scholars are out there are gonna be like stop stop yeah. talking about them. <laughs> Nobody knows. Yeah. Um, but I, I I'm I'm just so fascinated because I was thinking this dawned on me maybe last summer I went to. Um, went to a museum, science museum, and it was, I was just fascinated. The exhibit they had was leading you through like each of the successive um, extinction events mm. that happened on the planet. And in the end, it was like, you know, an argument for, are we, are we living through, you know, this, this age in which we are bringing about the next extinction level, yeah. you know, event through by human um, mismanagement. But I was thinking about how, this story like a story about dinosaurs doesn't happen without human authors hmm. which is like and i it makes me think a little bit i'm just thinking out loud with you on this Parker. yeah yeah, um, yeah this is awesome it makes me think about israel's vocational call which is in some sense to be narrators of the true story hmm. to yeah. be light to the nations and i i think that's I think that's an interesting thing about our calling. It appears to me the uniqueness of by whatever means it came about, I see it as God doing it. But, you know, maybe it started off as just like, hey, we need to avoid snakes. So we come up with these ways of imagining a snake being in the grass and how we'd respond to it. And that expands out to our ability to tell a story about dinosaurs that went extinct 65 million years ago. Yeah. And we're like, this story maybe doesn't get preserved or told without the human capacity to be attracted to narrative and story. So this is where I get back to maybe like, maybe I'm Sisyphus pushing this boulder up the hill and it's like, well, what would I rather believe? And I think I just would rather believe, maybe I'm right or wrong, but I don't yeah. know how I'd figure out whether I'm right or wrong in this. I'd rather believe that God has called us to be storytellers and that there is yeah. something about that in us, that he's doing something in a narrative form, or at least we're attracted to that narrative form. And there's something about our calling to tell that story too so uh, well, dude, this is so good and and so like i even when you gave the naturalistic gloss where you're like we just have all these these data points and then we're going to come up with a theory around it 
they you you can't avoid the story because even in yeah. telling that story, you're telling a story where exactly. you're like, this is who we are, and you have a creation narrative. It's it's everything from nothing. You have yeah, you have a you have an eschatology where it's mm-hmm. the heat the heat death of the universe, right? Like you, you yeah, have. C.S. Lewis made this argument. This is yeah. like you could if you turn that into myth. If you turn naturalism into a myth, yeah, it's like this really compelling tragedy, right? Yeah, yeah, the, and he uh, he is he he does that a lot of places. Where one of them is like the death of a great myth or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, so there's that. I wrote down a bunch here. Oh, okay, dude. So um, uh, the postmodernists are right about a lot of stuff, and not everything. Christians love to just bash on them, especially Christian apologists. But they were right about the the role of narrative. They were right about the role of the individual narrative. They were just wrong about the the role of the meta narrative. Yeah. They thought, you know, initially they were arguing against communism and then it got turned on Christianity and every meta narrative. But the focus, the emphasis on stories and and uh, individual stories is awesome. Like we're all we all have this story and it's like why do why does my life have a narrative plot? How, what the heck? Why should my life have that? Is it just wishful thinking? Is it just no, they're like look at people's lives, ask them their story. Maybe they maybe they're just doing it um because we think narratively. Well, why why do we think that way? You know why? Why? Oh, because it helps us survive. Okay, so you're doing it right now. Yeah, you're telling the story. We can't escape from the narrative. And so, what what really matters is not the worldview. It's the worldview in motion. It's the narrative. It's the meta narrative going on. It's how that worldview plays out through history, uh, where it's going. You know. So, like, I, I think Christians have different worldviews. I don't know that there is a Christian worldview because if you're a a classical theist, you're going to have a different view of God than a neoclassical theist. So you don't really have the same worldview. If you think God is inside of time. You have a different worldview than if you think God's outside of time. And yet you can still all believe the Christian meta narrative, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So yeah, dude, I'm with you. I'm, I think stories just run real, real deep. And the more, even when I find myself procrastinating, what am I doing? I'll watch Netflix or uh, HBO Max or wherever because yeah. I'm sucked into some kind of story. Mm-hmm. And right now it's Tron, dude. I can't stop watching Tron. I watched it like 11 times in the last month. Um, the original just, or... Uh, both. I watched the original because I wanted to understand that other one more. But yeah. Legacy is my jam. But it just—I'm a story guy, man. I'm—I'm I'm just coming to embrace it. Like we're made uh, by a storytelling God who cares about the story of things. Yes, He cares about the other stuff too. But He's telling a story. Why did He create it all to tell a story? You know, it's—it's it's insane. It's wild. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, my friend, Father Kenneth Tanner. Shout out to Kenneth if he's listening. Um, he likes to say that the Christian calling is to tell the true story of the world. Mm. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, I like, I think there's a lot of strength in what you're, you're, you're saying. And, um, I'd love to, you know, this may be a good place to, to land the plane, but, um, if you have an opinion, you've been listening to Parker and I, especially as we're wrestling with, all right, what's the trajectory of this story mm. right now? Um, you know, I'm going to post this on, on YouTube as well. And Parker, you're, you're free to, if you'd like to do it on yours as well, um, or in the comment section on YouTube or message either one of us on Patreon or I don't know, you, you do you get on Twitter a little bit. Yeah. Here and there, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at it, but I, yeah, yeah well, well, re- reach out to us and, and tell us what your perspective is on what's the current trajectory of the story. Is it going to end? Do you see it as maybe kind of what I was arguing for, which is kind of peaks and valleys, thesis and antithesis and and moving into a new synthesis that leads to the end? Or maybe maybe Parker's right. Maybe it's more Tolkien-like. Maybe it's it doesn't look good until 
till the very end. I, I'm I'm very much fascinated in that. No, none of us can say for sure. So <laughs> it's fun to speculate. And I think we learned something in even just speculating together. And uh, Parker, thank you for the time. This is a blast. We need to do this more regularly. Definitely, man. Definitely. I got to get you on mine. I got to get that book and and read it, man. Um, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to jump into your stuff because I, I love thinking about evil as, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, yeah. I think it's important to think about God. It, it helps us. Yeah. It helps us uh, think about God more rightly. So dude, thanks for, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm excited to do this more. I think we could do this a bunch and I would talk for to. hours. Yeah, I would love to. Everyone go check out, I'll put a link in the below to Parker's Pensies. Again, one of my top five. I support Parker on Patreon. If you like his stuff, support it too. Um, you know, I think what he's doing is it's, it's like what a philosophy professor is doing in undergrad or even graduate level stuff. It's amazing. He's got some of the top minds. I'm looking at this list on my other screen right now. I'm scrolling through his videos of some of these people that are on there. I'm like, dude, this turn off whatever everyone else is watching on YouTube. I don't know how some of this stuff is getting a million views and go watch Parker stuff or listen to it. I'll provide links below. Thanks again, Parker. Thanks, man. Yeah. God bless. Well, thanks again for your valuable attention, and I hope you've gotten something out of today's conversation. If so, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's an observation, maybe there's a tangential thought that hit you while you were listening, maybe even have some critique or maybe a pushback. I'd love to hear all of that stuff. So feel free to reach out to me. You can do so on Patreon by sending me a message. You can participate in the discussion forum for this episode or in our Deep Talks Discord server. Another way you can reach out if you're not plugged in on Patreon is by uh, reaching out to me on Twitter at Paul Ann Leitner uh, or also on Instagram. You can also find me there at, at Paul Ann Leitner. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Selena, and Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this podcast without you. I sincerely mean that. And again, if you are interested in supporting and becoming a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, where you will get also these like additional perks like bonus Q&A episodes, we do um, Zoom calls together. We hop on and have live Q&As and discussion times. It's a bunch of really great people, and I learn a lot from their input as well. If you're interested in any of that, click the link in the description below. And until next time, friends, we will talk again soon. 